If you are new here, my name is Trevor. I am the worship and youth pastor here. Uh, our other pastors, Doug and Lance, are out in Nigeria today. They are visiting a place of hope, which is an orphanage that we support, and uh, supporting our missionaries over there, the troops as well. So if you would have them in your prayer, I'm sure they would covet that. Now, I say they're in Nigeria, but that's to the best of my knowledge. I mean, I haven't seen any pictures yet. They could be in Galveston. Uh, but we do think that they are in Nigeria this morning. Who was able to see the solar eclipse yesterday? Okay, a lot of people. Thanks to my friend Connor Moore, who gave me some glasses yesterday. I've got a picture of my three boys up here just enjoying the solar eclipse. Uh, I think they are, but you can see they're all kind of looking different directions. I, I think one of them is looking at the sun, and the other two are like, whoa, look at these glasses. This is cool. Oh, man, it was, it was so wonderful. Just to be a child and your, your mind just filled with the wonder of the universe, you know, of God's creation. How awesome is that. Well, the title of this message this morning is We Fail, He Restores. And if there's anything that you get from this morning, it is just this simple concept. We were just singing these songs that from the impossible We'll see a miracle. God, we believe, we believe for it. And you might be feeling right now that you're just in such an impossible situation this morning that those lyrics just could not possibly apply to you. So this is, if you get any truth from this morning, this is the truth that you and I, we all fail. We're all broken. We've been born into a broken world. We've been raised by broken people. And we've gone with our brokenness into life. And we all fail. We all have that. But ever since Genesis... God has been in the process of restoration. Humanity, the story, chapter after chapter, is failure after failure after failure. And God is in the process of restoring people no matter where they're at and where they start. So if you have a relationship that is broken this morning, you're coming in and you're like, you know, this, this relationship, this marriage, this friendship. Or you're coming in, you're feeling depressed or filled with anxiety. Or maybe there's a sin that is just gnawing at you, a sin that you keep turning to, or an addiction. We all fail. But God restores. So let's, let's give that some lip service this morning. I want us to say that together. I want you to hear that truth come from your own voice. We'll say, we fail, then we'll say, he restores, all right? One, two, three. We fail, he restores. Amen. I want to start this morning by talking about final moments. I think as people, we tend to find and remembrance and significance in, in final moments. I, I remember as a high schooler, and for those of you that are your senior years or just finished your senior year, my, I, there was so much significance in that final track meet that I ever had at our state championship and jumping over that final hurdle. I can remember that just like that. Some of you, your significance in a final moment might be 
uh, the time that you walked across that graduation stage and you got your diploma, you worked your entire college career to get there or your entire high school career to get there, uh, there's significance in final moments. Some of you remember getting married. Now, getting married wasn't a final moment, but <laughs> <laughs> significance in the finalhood of singleness, right? Uh, we can zoom in on those memories much much easier than other memories we have. Some of you have lost loved ones, and you've, you've gone through tragedy, or, or uh, uh, perhaps they, just, they, they, they passed away after a long battle of cancer, and you, you remember that significance of that. You can zoom, your, 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 your time slows down a little bit when you, you think about moments like that. We, we find significance in, in final moments, and it's the same with the gospel writers, in, in the New Testament, they, they had significance in the last week of Jesus' life. Time slowed down. They zoomed in. There's a lot of detail. In fact, 34% of all the gospel writing focuses in on the last week of Jesus' life. 34%. If you do the word count on that, that's about 22,000 words that are devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. And if you take that word count and you say, well, what if the gospel writers wrote every week of Jesus' life in that same kind of significance, in that same kind of zooming in? What if we just took that to his public ministry three years? If you took that same focus they had in the last week and put that focus on the last three, the three years of his public ministry, that would be six Bibles cover to cover to cover to cover to cover. And what's happening is the gospel writers are saying, we want you to pay attention to something here. This is significant. This is important. And this morning, I want to, in our time together, zoom in on a subplot happening in the last week of Jesus' life. Really, the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. And this subplot involves this character named Peter. Now, I absolutely love Peter. I don't love Peter because of the cool stuff he did, though. I love Peter because he made some really stupid decisions... Or what we would call very stupid decisions. He made mistakes. He failed. And you can see humanity when you look at Peter's life. He was just a regular old guy. Old, old, I mean, young guy at the time, I guess. Um, <laughs> he's known as one of those guys that just wouldn't shut up. His words got him into a lot of trouble. For example, if you look at the Mount of Transfiguration, this is in Luke chapter 9. Jesus uh, is with his uh, head honchos, Peter, James, and Johns. Uh, we call them his inner circle. I should have said that. But they were up here on the Mount of Transfiguration, and then Jesus shows them his glory. Moses and Elijah show up, and Peter's there. And I imagine this is like the look on Peter's face. Because what he says next is... Is hilarious. He says, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. I love it. I love it. Some of us, when we don't know what to say, what do we do? We just don't say anything. Like, that's the normal thing to do, right? How much of us, how many of us know someone who, when they don't know what to say, they just speak more? 
they just fill in the gap. They're like, oh, one of uh, the great theologians of my day and age, Michael Scott from The Office, once said, sometimes I start a sentence and I don't even know where it's going. I just hope I find it along the way. And that's who this Peter guy is. He's known as a guy who just wouldn't shut up, but he was also known as a guy that just wore his faults on his sleeves. He was transparent. You never had to guess what Peter thought or felt about anything. So during our time together this morning, I want us to, to do this hyper-zoom in on this subplot in, in, in the last week of, the, 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 of Jesus' life, the last day of Jesus' life. And we're going to focus on this guy named Peter, and we're going to focus on one remarkable failure in Peter's life. And through this failure, we are going to focus on three lies that Peter was believing in that moment. And three truths that could set him free. Three lies, three truths, one remarkable failure. And the reason I want to spend the time this morning examining these lies is because you and I fall for the same stuff. We believe the same stuff. We, we live many days believing lies about ourselves or believing lies about God. And if we knew the truth, what God really wanted for us, that truth would set us free. So one failure, three lies, three truths. Does that sound good with you guys this morning? All right. Before we get into the text, we're going to say our creed together. We say this every Sunday morning. Uh, it's something that we believe and something that we speak from our mouths. So let's say that together. It is this. The Bible is the word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind. And give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. We're going to be looking in Matthew 26 this morning. I'm reading from the ESV. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the seat in front of you. That's going to be page 781. Matthew chapter 26. ESV translation page 781 if you're looking at the Bible under the seat in front of you. So the context here is they have just had the Last Supper. Jesus is with his disciples. They are going in the evening up to the Mount of Olives. This is the night before Jesus was crucified. And Jesus then starts talking to his disciples. He says to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd And the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must Die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. It's incredible at first look with this passage um, when you examine Peter and his transparency that he has the audacity to disagree with Jesus. Now, every relationship has its disagreement. 
you and your wife or you and your friends certainly don't agree on everything, but I can tell you, if the argument's with Jesus, you're wrong. Like, there, there's no middle ground there. And, and uh, he's disagreeing with Jesus. What's, what's interesting to me, though, is also Peter, out of all the disciples, was the very first disciple to call Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. So he, he knows who he is. He knows this is the Christ. But also, I don't know anywhere else in the New Testament where you see in these Gospels a, a disciple just disagreeing with Jesus so vocally. Now, I can see that where Jesus is talking to them, to the disciples, the other disciples may have felt that in their heart. But Peter's like, uh-uh, Jesus. Like, that's not going to happen here. That's not going to happen here. And he, he, he disagrees with Jesus, and the question is why? Why would, why would he do that? What, what, what was in Peter's heart in that moment to disagree with Jesus? And here's three thoughts as to why he may have disagreed with Jesus. The first is that he thought he was better than Jesus' assessment of him. <laughs> Look how he writes it in the verse. He says, they may all fall away. But I will never fall away. Jesus, I don't know about these other guys. You know more about them than I do, but I, I know this would never be the case for me. They all may fall away. I would never fall away. I would never be like the others. I am better than that. Have you ever been there? Like, let, let's get some, some inside gossip. Hey, have you heard about so-and-so and what happened to them? Have you heard that their relationship is on the rocks right now, that they might be splitting up? Oh, my goodness. That, would, that, that may happen to them. That would never happen to me. Oh, have you, have you heard the latest gossip on, on what so My best name for fake, fictitious characters this morning is so-and-so. Have you heard the latest gossip on so-and-so and, and what he said to her? Oh, my goodness. That was the worst thing. How could he do something? I would never. They may say that. I would never. He thought he was better than Jesus' assessment of him. Second thought, why did he disagree with Jesus as his pride made him feel that he knew more than Jesus. Pride means to, to be arrogant, to puff yourself up. His, his friend, later acquaintance, also Apostle Paul, would write in 1 Corinthians, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stand take heed, lest he fall. Lest he, fall. he thought he, in this moment, Jesus, yeah, I know this is what you think, but here's the reality. There's no way. I've been walking with you for three years. There's no way. What's funny is Peter would later go on to write in 1 Peter chapter 5 that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Jesus, you're, you're wrong about me on this. And so since Peter thought he was better than Jesus' assessment, and since he thought that he knew more, then more than likely Jesus' words probably offended him. Jesus and Peter at this time aren't just rabbi and student. They are friends. 
They've been hanging around for a a long time. They've been eating meals together. They've been fellowshipping together. They've They've been going through life together. And I can see Peter saying, come on, Jesus, how could you say such a thing about us? We're tight. We're close. Now, here's a lie that I believe Peter was falling into, and the lie was this, that he thought he knew more about this than Jesus did. And the lie that you and I fall into is that I know more than God. You might be thinking right now, I have never even thought that once in my whole life. (laughs) I get that. This isn't a lie that we speak out. It's a lie that we internalize and believe deep, deep down inside of us. Since I know more than God, I actually know what's best for myself. Right? Thanks, God, for sharing your plan and letting your Holy Spirit nudge me this direction. But I really think my comfort and security is more going this way. It's a subtle lie. You feel it in your spirit. You can actually virtually take this lie and apply it to almost, I I think, any sin circumstance in your life. For a moment in time when you said that thing or you went to that website or you, you felt that way or you responded in that way, in a moment in time you were telling yourself the lie that I know my path a little better than God does. I know my direction just a little better than God does. And for that moment, you bought into the lie and the deception that your path and your way and your best is better than God's best. But the truth is this, that God actually knows me better than I know myself. And because he knows me better than I know myself, he actually gently leads me to his best. So why is that truth so freeing? Well, if I truly believe that Jesus is leading me to his best, that means he welcomes me to himself in spite of who I am, in spite of what I've done, in spite of what I've believed, in spite of what I've thought about God. There's this this Jesus who is still welcoming me to his feet where his yoke is easy, his burden is light, and at his feet... I can find my best. And at his direction, I can find true joy and true peace. God knows me better than I know myself. He gently leads me to his best. And since he knows you better than yourself, he has an infinitely better understanding of the direction that you are to go. Infinitely better. So the story starts with Peter disagreeing with Jesus. What happens next? Let's look a couple verses later, verse 69. This next account is really fascinating. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath, saying, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up to Jesus, and I mean, came up to Peter, and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them. 
for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man, and immediately the rooster crowed. Well, that story just escalated pretty quickly, huh? Peter is initially disagreeing with Jesus. Ah, Jesus, that ain't the case. But at this point, we see Peter going from disagreement to betrayal. Peter betrays Jesus. And I wanted to use that word betray here this morning because I think when we say Peter denies Jesus, which is true, that's what he did, it makes what he looked a little bit better than what Judas did. Like, okay, yeah, I I can relate, like, Peter, Peter messed up, but it wasn't nearly as bad. I want to use the word betray um, because in light of what Jesus does, his denial doesn't look that bad. But we still need to call it what it is. It is betrayal. Betrayal means to fail or to desert in a time of need. Example, literally any romantic relationship. High schoolers. Some of y'all are dating someone. If you were to go to a football game, like, in a couple weeks, and your, your boyfriend, your girlfriend's not there, and you, all of a sudden you're sitting next to someone that's kind of cute, and they say, hey, are you single? And you say, well, actually, yes, I am. You know, that's a denial, right? You just denied. That's not just a denial. That's a betrayal. Married people, if you go out... And you take your wedding ring off for the evening and you're denying the fact that you are married. You're not just denying something. You are betraying something. So here is Peter, who is part of the church, which is the bride of Christ, denying Jesus and literally betraying Jesus. And he's, he's betraying him for a, a couple, couple reasons here. First of all, I think that, that Peter was very fearful. If you, if you skip back to verse 58, it says Peter was following him, that's Jesus, at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Peter's actually... Inside this area where, where Jesus all of a sudden is starting to be hurled abuse after abuse. He's starting to be hit. He's starting to be spit on. And here is Peter against the back wall seeing what's going on and wanting to observe what's going on to the very end. And then when we get to this other verse, uh, I think at the beginning of the passage I just showed, verse 69, it shows him in, outside the courtyard. So he saw this. Then he stepped outside, and then the servant girl goes up to him and says, Hey, you look to be like one of those people. Peter had never seen anyone slap his rabbi before. He had had never seen any abuse hurled at his rabbi before. He had never heard Jesus yell out in pain. He had never seen Jesus beaten up before. And now shell-shocked Peter goes from inside the courtroom to outside the courtroom where all of a sudden he's approached and said, hey, you know the guy, don't you? He says, no, I don't. He's fearful. Have you ever felt fearful before to speak up about Jesus? To speak the name of Jesus to someone? 
You may see that they're broken. You may see that they're hurt. You may see that they don't have a relationship with Jesus, but what's held you back in the past? We know what held Peter back. He was fearful, but also I, I believe that Peter was very doubtful. He just saw what had happened, and it is shaking his entire worldview up. It's shaking his entire belief up what he had thought about Jesus. He he had been hoping that Jesus was going to be rescuing them from the Roman oppression, that he was going to be building this kingdom, that he was going to be in the right crowd. And all of a sudden he's like, wait a minute, is this all legitimate? Is this really true? And his whole worldview is being tested and being crumbling down. If he had truly believed what Jesus had been teaching the last three years, that he would die and that he would be raised from the dead, his story may have played out differently. But instead, everything he thought about Jesus in that moment was now being questioned. Did he believe the wrong guy? I mean, surely, what I'm seeing right now, this can't be right. Even the most faithful of Christians struggle with doubts. We doubt his goodness. We can doubt his word. If that's you this morning, then Peter can relate. Finally, Peter was a coward. When the stakes were raised and associations with Jesus all of a sudden became dangerous, he was more concerned about his self-preservation than standing by his friend. He was a coward. And, and I think it boils down to this. It's a lie that Peter, if you look at his life, he consistently slipped into from time to time. And that lie is this, that the chaos, the present chaos that I see, feel, or experience means that I am hopeless. Or you can substitute that word instead of hopeless. You know, the present chaos that I see, feel, and experience means that I'm broken. It means that I, there, there's no redemption for me. I've gone too far. It means that I'm a failure. Or the present chaos that I see, feel, and experience means that I'm a mistake. You know, if I was really supposed to be here, I wouldn't be experiencing this. There's no way that God had this in the cards. Or maybe the present chaos that I see, feel, and experience means that I'm in the wrong place. No, I'm just not supposed to be here. I'm not supposed to be in this marriage. I'm not supposed to be in this school, or I'm not supposed to be in this college. This, this is too much. These trials are too much. It, it means that I'm hopeless. And what Peter is thinking is Jesus has beaten. We have lost. He is not king. Our movement is over. And he consistently struggled with this, allowing his experience to shape his reality. Back to when he was walking on the water in Matthew chapter 14, verse 30. It says, walking on the water when he saw, right? When he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. What he saw felt and experience in that chaos, and he was hopeless. You can dumb this down and, and look at this just slightly different. What I see, feel, and experience determines my reality. 
when we walk around with that sort of worldview that our experiences shape the truth, your truth is consistently, constantly shaping with whatever environment you are then put into. This is a very, very prevalent worldview that we wrestle with today. What I see, feel, and experience determines my reality. But here's the truth. That Peter didn't realize in that moment, but he was about to realize, is that true life-giving hope was created, it was formed out of the chaos of the cross. His True hope was just about to come on the, the scene. And, and in that moment, in his darkest moment, as he was betraying, as Jesus was being beaten and abused, God was in the process of paving a way for humanity to come to know him through Jesus. Though Peter was doubtful, fearful, a coward, though his hope was flickering away, God was on the, the brink of the largest spiritual transaction in history. His blood for our redemption. And what I would like to bring to you this morning is maybe the chaos that you are experiencing maybe and seeing and feeling is not actually the end of your story. Maybe what you are feeling today And what you are seeing today and the wreckage that you are going through today and the chaos that you're enduring is not the end of the story. And maybe God has some restoration in there for you. God never intended us to be defined by our chaos. Too many of us wallow around in our chaos. X happened to me years ago and I've I've never been the same. And I, I want to say that that chaos is real that we are that we face as people. I'm not minimizing that. But God doesn't intend for your life and that chaos to be the end of your story. He has more chapters to write. That's why it's called amazing grace. Because it's over and over and over again, we fail, God restores. We fail, God restores. There's chaos here. God's working in it. He's at work in our disasters. He did not, Jesus did not die on the cross to leave you where you're at. So have you given God your chaos this morning? Have you given that brokenness to him? Before we talk too much about restoration, I want to um, just kind of put a subdivision between uh, points two and three here in the notes. We're going to do a little little aside here. He, uh, he was betraying Jesus, what happened after that. And I see this really, really incredible parallel that I don't want you guys to miss. And let's start at verse 75. It says, after, after Peter realized what had happened... He remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went and he wept bitterly. This word for bitterly in the Greek, though I'm not a Greek scholar, you can see there's significance in it because that is the only time that word shows up in the New Testament. The only time it's ever described in this way for the way he was weeping. This is a also can be translated violently. He wept violently. It's a sharp grief. It's a 
desperate grief. It's a grief that, that holds on. I've only experienced this grief one time in my life, and that was back in 2015 when we got a call that um, one of our family members had lost his life tragically. You wake up the next morning and you feel that grief in your bones. It's a sharp grief, and that's what's going on in Peter's moment here. It's desperate. It's a desperate grief. What's interesting is if you look three verses later, you start seeing some really interesting parallels between this man Peter and this guy Judas. Judas, like Peter, he opens his eyes after the failure happens and he sees what happens. He he responds in desperation. This was Judas. He had received payment for betraying Jesus in Matthew 27, verse 3. You can see and find this parallel between him and Peter's story. Take a look at verse 3 in chapter, uh, chapter 27 with me. It, it says this, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. Let's take a look at that parallel on the screen. There's, there's, there's several points in which Peter and Judas same, share a lot of the same story. They both had a moment of betrayal. Judas is in chapter 26, both in chapter 26. Peter betrayed, he denied Jesus. Judas betrayed by handing him over. They both had this moment of remorse after the betrayal, after a certain period of time. They, Peter remembered what he did and he went out. Judas, he saw what had happened and says he changed his mind about what he was wanting to do. And they both go out and they both respond in desperation. Judas in chapter 27, Peter in chapter 26. I find this parallel really, really interesting. Because if you know anything about Peter, <laughs> if you've read the New Testament, if you've listened to a couple messages on Peter, Peter ends up going in the future where he is no longer a coward at the foot of the cross. He is now courageous bearing the cross in the future. He's found, I think it's in Acts chapter 3, preaching at Pentecost. 3,000 people come to know Jesus. He becomes an established leader in the early church. He goes on and on. He's writing books of the Bible. They weren't calling it the Bible at that time, but that's eventually what it was canonized into. Like Peter is going on and he is doing this incredible work for Jesus. So if God could do that restorative work in Peter's life, what could he have done with a guy like Judas? What can he do with a person like you? What would it have looked like if Judas had just waited for three more days? I don't know. That's all speculation. But I do know that it's not about what we have done. It's about what Jesus does in our brokenness. 
and what Jesus does in his restorative work. Because the next chapter, and the reason I think that's a fair question to ask, the, the next part of this story has nothing to do with Peter. It has everything to do with Jesus. And we see this in, um, in uh, Mark chapter 16, because Jesus goes on to restore Peter. Jesus restores Peter. We're, we're in Mark chapter 16. And the context is Jesus had died at this point. Peter had his desperate grief moment. It had been three days, and now it is Resurrection Sunday, and the women go to the tomb, and the angel says that the body is not here. He says, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Now look at what the angel says. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Jesus is restoring Peter. And and we see here that this restoration is is a personal restoration. Of all the disciples, there's one man he needed to count, call in and say, hey, we haven't forgotten about you. You still got more chapters in this story, Peter. You come along too. Go tell the disciples, don't forget about that guy. Go tell the disciples and Peter. There's more chapters to be written in your story, Peter. There's more things you have to do, Peter. There's a church that needs your help, Peter. You're not defined by your failure, Peter. His restoration is personal toward Peter. Finally, we see his restoration is complete. It says this right toward the end of the book of John, chapter 21, Jesus had been raised from the dead and Peter and Jesus are hanging out they're getting breakfast together it says that when they finished breakfast Jesus said to Simon Peter Simon son of John do you love me more than these he said to him yes Lord you know that I love you and he said to him well feed my lambs And then Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord. You know know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Peter, you're forgiven the first time. You're forgiven the second time. You're forgiven the third time. You're restored, Peter. You have a purpose, Peter. I'm not done with you yet. And in that moment, I think the struggle that Peter would have faced up until then even while he was with the disciples, up until he, he got that verbal confirmation from Jesus saying, look, there are still chapters to be written, Peter. I, I wonder if Peter believed, like you and I believe, that my failure 
makes me unforgivable. What I've done, the cross cannot bear. As if in Jesus, blood was not enough for us. But the truth is this, that the cross makes the unforgivable forgivable. It makes whatever you've done and in your brokenness and in your desperation, in the chaos of your life, that there are still more chapters to be written if you allow Jesus to take that brokenness and restore it for his glory. There's more to come. He's not done with us. He wasn't done with Peter. And the overarching truth this morning that I want to communicate is that God desperately wants to restore you. Whether that is this morning that you do not even have a relationship with Jesus, whether you don't know about this joy, this peace, you don't know about this eternal destination, you don't know if, if Jesus has a place in your life, if you don't know Jesus, God wants to restore you by allowing you to put your faith in him. Go from dead to life. Hallelujah, he brought me back to life. If God can bring the dead to life, what can he do with your brokenness? Maybe that's you this morning, you just don't know Jesus. Perhaps, perhaps you're here, you're, you've been following Jesus for a while. You know Jesus as your Savior. There's still brokenness that we deal with. There's still chaos that we go through. There are still things that we need to allow to give to Jesus. There's chains that need to be broken. And if that's you this morning, I would submit to you that perhaps your brokenness can find some sort of restoration at the feet of Jesus. Maybe for you, you just need to take that brokenness to him. Or maybe you need to approach that person and, and start pursuing reconciliation. Or maybe you need to take the next step and develop a prayer life and develop a humility to go before Jesus and say, God, let me submit to you my brokenness. Let me submit to you my marriage. Let me submit to you this sin. When Jesus, when, when Peter was sinking in the water, what did he cry out? Lord, save me. Even as believers, we need to make that, that part of our cry. So I'm going to invite the team back up. We're going to pray. I, I, I'd encourage you guys to uh, let's all bow our heads here for just a moment. I have a couple questions to ask, uh, and then we'll be done here. If you're here this morning and you you feel that you do not know if you 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 have a relationship with Jesus, and you're here and you're like, you know, I need restoration. I've never, there's never been a moment that I've placed my faith in Christ and Christ alone to save me. If that's you this morning and you want to take the next step of placing your faith in Jesus Christ, would you be so, so bold to raise your hand so I can pray for you this morning? You don't know Jesus and now this is the morning you want to, to place your faith in Christ. There's a restoration that needs to happen. you're here this morning and you're saying, you know, that, that's not me, but I too have a lot of brokenness. I have this anger that I'm holding on to. 
I have this betrayal that I'm holding on to. I have this chaos in my life that I'm holding on to. I have this resentment toward God. I can't believe he's put me in this financial situation, or I can't believe he's put me in this job. If you feel like you've got some brokenness this morning and you'd like um, some prayer, would you, would you be courageous enough to lift your hands so we can pray for you? I see those hands. I see those hands. If you're feeling broken this morning and you're looking for some help, we have some people in the back that would love to pray with you. You can also come up to the front and pray here during the closing song. But first and foremost, let me just pray for us. We're going to sing a song about hope, about a God that loves us and whose grace has no end. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you that you restore. God, thank you that you call us out of our brokenness into your marvelous light and that you give joy and you give peace and we can find it in your presence, Lord. And we can find it with you. Lord, there's a lot of broken people here in this, in this room this morning. There's a lot of chaos going in our lives. And I pray that this week today, well, this morning, Lord, that this will be a first step of restoration for some of us to give you that chaos and say, God, it's out of my control. I'm giving this to you. God, if you can take the dead and raise them from, from the dead, you can take our brokenness and restore. And we believe that. I thank you for this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.